morning, everybody. Great time of worship. Just waiting on Will to leave the stage. You've had your time in the spotlight, buddy. It's time to move it along. Future future son-in-law, I can do that. Thank you, ladies, for the reading this morning as well, and I appreciate um, your presence in our church, but I appreciate all of you guys in this row and then the students that are just kind of throughout the church as well and the fact that you carry a, a candle of a testimony in the place where you're learning and living and uh, just very proud of that uh, growth and that presence that you have. And so we often pray for our college students, whether they're here domestically, locally, or they're from away. And um, it's a very difficult place to even claim in the existence or the acknowledgement of a real God. And so uh, they are, um, while they're learning all things about how to adjust at this age and prepare for life and those kinds of things, they're also wrestling with this concept of how is God real and real in my life and real in the lives of the people around me and how do we uh, deal with those kinds of um, conversations and things like that. So we pray for you all often and know that it's a big burden that you often carry. And so uh, just um, proud of you and thankful for your uh, participation and your presence here in our church. Um, and Mike, thank you for the um, words of preparation for communion. This idea of preparation is uh, just kind of bleeding through the whole theme of this morning because... Um, a lot of the things that Mike shared are going to um, prepare the way very well for our time in the Word of God this morning. And to, before we even get into our text in John, we have a passage of preparation, and that happens 2,000 years before the arrival of Jesus on this earth. And we find that in Genesis 22. Let me read to you sort of a a chunk of scripture that explains what is going on between God's testing of Abraham. Abraham was the one that God had called aside, set aside to make holy. And he promised him, I will, I will bless a nation through you. And uh, if you know the story, uh, Abraham and Sarah were very old at the time of this promise, and Sarah couldn't contain herself. She was a, a normal woman, and she laughs out loud, like, how in the world am I supposed to have children? And so the Lord's promise finally is fulfilled, and Sarah and Abraham finally have their child, Isaac. And then this is what the Lord does in their life, we see in Genesis 22. That God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. I'm going to, I'm going to trip over this word Moriah because I'm a Lord of the Rings nut and Moria is the mountain of the dwarves, the Kate. So I apologize ahead of time. Moriah. If I say Moria, just pray the Lord doesn't lightning, you know, how that goes. <clears throat> but this is what. Lord says to him, so take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to a place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, The young men, you stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hands. It uh, it took in his hand the fire and the knife. 
So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac says to his father, uh, Dad, and he goes, here I am, son. He says, I see fire and wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac knows that there's a sacrifice that needs to be made in worship to the Lord. So Abraham says, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Abraham knew he was there to fulfill a command. What we now see in the text is just a test, but Abraham was there to obey the Lord. Isaac wasn't in on the plan other than the fact that he was going to be the subject of the plan. Verse 9, so when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Again, we didn't read all the context here. Abraham is not just losing his mind. He's not just, you know, off his meds or anything like that. This is Abraham saying, okay, Lord, you said what I'm supposed to do. I will go to the mountain that you pointed out and I will obey you. Even though you're calling me to sacrifice my only son, the one that you promised I would have after all these years, the one that you promised to bless a nation through. But if you want him back, I'll give him to you. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He says, here I am. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. 2,000 years before the arrival of Jesus, this um, story was given to us, this action of Abraham and Isaac and this command of God and this intervention of the angel is all recorded for us so that we would have preparation, that we would have an anticipation that that sacrifice would be provided for us. Abraham, you don't need to make the sacrifice. I have it for you. I have a specific location that it's going to take place, and I don't need your son Isaac for it. Though God's promises may take a long time to come true, they always come true. God's plans always account for the free will sins of mankind, whether we're obedient or whether we're rebellious. And Mike was hinting at this earlier in our time of communion, that we would use the actions of Pilate or Judas or Peter or even Caiaphas, the 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 Jewish leader. All of those men in this story had their own plans, had their own schemes, were prepared to, to live their their own lives, whether God was happy with it or not. And yet God knew that that would be part of the plan and used those men, even in their rebellion, to accomplish his purposes. And we're going to take a little bit closer look at some of these prophecies of the Old Testament, much like we saw in Genesis 22, to see that God's plans will will still come about, whether or not it would seem like people are there to try to trip them up. God's position is always to shine the most light, the most brilliant light on his own glory. And you and I become the benefits of God shining bright, that he is in it for his own fame. He is in it for his own glory, but he is in it so that we will benefit from him shining brightest. 
And God's power is always in control of every situation. We have seen this from the denial, from the arrest, the trials, the everything. And now leading towards the crucifixion, we have seen the, the, um, the intricacy of a plan unfolding. And we see in it that God is the one in control. And everybody, though they think they have the upper hand on him, they have the advantage on him, they're just playing into his hands all along. I don't know if you picked up on from all of these sentences, because I know you're hanging on every single word I say, right? But let me say it again. God's promises, his plans, his position, and his power. We preachers love alliteration, and when they use the word P, it's even better. The letter P. God's promises, plan, position, and power in this account are going to make certain demands of us that we need to pay attention to. And I want to introduce a couple of those demands from our text this morning. The first of which is that the crucifixion of Jesus is even going to make its own demands. As we examine closely the crucifixion, we have some decisions and some responses to make. So let's go back to our text that the ladies had read for us earlier. Back in verse 16 of John 19, he, Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. You'll hear it often said when you study the, the details of the crucifixion, when you, when you um, see what a lot of people have said about how the Romans used crucifixion, you'll often hear them say they didn't invent crucifixion. It wasn't their idea. They just perfected it. The Romans took this form of, of capital punishment to a whole new level. Their, their um, interest in it was that it was not only a brilliant way to break down the body and to weaken the person to maybe get out of them the confession they wanted, but it was also a brilliant way to instill fear on everybody else looking like, I don't want to mess with those guys because that's what they do to lawbreakers. So something in this whole process really appear, appealed to the, the Roman leadership to say, we can, we can study this, we can implement this, we can practice and make this so precise that people will, will run from us in fear. That was the goal in all of this. This is what Jesus is walking into. It was the most cruel and shameful of all punishments, said the Roman statesman philosopher Cicero. He said, let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen, nay, not even near his thoughts or his eyes or his ears. Only by special permission could a Roman ever be subject to crucifixion. They said, this is way beneath our people. We would never subject ourselves to this kind of capital punishment unless somebody of a particular heinous sort of of crime or traitorship or something, and they would then authorize it. But they didn't want this to be anything their own people ever had to suffer through. We aren't looking at all of the specific details of the crucifixion this morning. I'm not walking you through all of the information that we know about what Jesus suffered only because of the time of year that we're in. Because as we prepare ourselves for the Good Friday service, that is often an opportunity for us to examine the difficulty, the horror, and some of the details of all that Jesus went through on our behalf. But nonetheless, the crucifixion demands something of us. The crucifixion demands our worship. When you and I take time to examine the horrific sufferings, regardless of the intensity of them, I know we have various 
you know, stomachs, if you will, in our room and under the sound of my voice that sometimes we just can't take certain things and I can relate to all of that. But when we allow ourselves to at least entertain the the fact of all that Jesus went through for us and even allowing some of those images and those sounds and some of those things to come into our life, it, it has the ability to produce in us an opportunity to respond in worship for all that he did, all that he went through. It's human nature for us to move away from suffering, to not want to see it. There's something that that if 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 I can just pretend as though people aren't broken, people aren't hurting, people aren't needy around me or anything, then if I can go around that, then I will. That's sort of the temptation that we often have. But there's a risk for um, the follower of Christ, and I would say there's even a risk for those that don't know Christ, to avoid the details of the suffering of the crucifixion. It's an integral part of what Jesus went through and why he went through it for us. When we acquaint ourselves with his agony, with his torture and suffering, it has the effect on us of protecting us from self-righteousness, of, of thinking that anybody that's on their game or anybody that's living right or anybody that's doing the right thing shouldn't have to go through any of that suffering or that torture. When we see that the most perfect among us, the one who never sinned, the one who never made a mistake or always loved everybody exactly the way they needed to be loved, still went through these things, it starts to put some some reality into our life that says, well, why do I think I can avoid suffering just because I'm a good guy or a good girl? Why, why, be, why do I think that I'm somehow immune to difficulty in my life? When we, when we take a closer look at the suffering of Jesus Christ, it starts to put those thoughts behind us. We take communion on a monthly basis. There's no scriptural um, mandate that says you have to do that on the first Sunday of the month or anything. Churches handle their, their frequency of communion differently. But we've um, managed to, to uh, provide this once a month because we feel like it's the, the right balance of not having a morbid fixation on all these horrors and these sufferings, but not letting it get too far from our memory. The whole point of us doing this together isn't because it's some religious act that we can check the box off and saying, I was in church on communion Sunday. That must have counted more for God. It's an opportunity to walk us into being more acquainted with his suffering for that thought, for that memory, for that imprint on our soul to not get too far from us. And so we come around the communion table once a month to be reminded the fact that his body was literally broken for us. His blood was literally spilt. For our sins. It, it produces in us a thankful worship. Building up the crucifixion, and I don't mean making it more than it is, it's already the biggest deal. It's why Christians have centered their whole practice of, of following Christ around the cross. But building it up in our minds, building it up in our worship, building it up in our whole person breaks down our self-reliance. At faith and at so many churches around the city of Waterville and greater Waterville, a gospel is being preached of the difference of what you and I can do to try to impress God and what God has already done in order to really save us from our sins. And that's where the difference lies in all of this. The more you and I examine the cross, the more you and I examine the suffering and, and, and witness the determination our ability to impress God starts to shrink, doesn't it? We stop to, we stop trying to show him our resume. I always use that illustration of like helping the little old lady across the street, which I still have never seen. 
I keep telling you guys this. I don't see any little Aaliyah. I want to pull the car over and help her across. She's never there. So I don't know where we get that illustration, but maybe it happens. All the things that I can offer to the Lord. See, I'm good. See, I did. See, I am. When we compare him to the willingness to go through that kind of torture and sacrifice, to, to lay my life down, not just to get myself out of a jam, but for the good of all those people that can't do it themselves. And not only all those people who can't do it themselves, all those people who don't think I can do it for them, all those people who don't think I need to do it for them, and all those people who are sending me there by punching me in the face, pulling my beard out, nailing spikes through my wrist, and doing all those things. Would we have the ability within and of ourselves to do that for someone else? You see, the the greater journey we take into the suffering of the crucifixion, the more it just causes us to worship. It's, what else do we do with that? I don't have that in me. I'm, I'm not that good a guy. Oftentimes I think I am, and then I, I see that like looking in the mirror, and I go, nope, that ain't me. But thanks be to God, it was Jesus. The crucifixion demands our worship, and then the the events of the crucifixion, as we look at them closer, demand our humility. We go look in verse 18. It says there, they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. It's interesting to note here that John's not spending a lot of time in the details. As you're getting more familiar with the difference between the, the gospel accounts, we're starting to see that as that writer in this um, particular instance, John, as he's writing down, he has a focus in mind. It's not that he wasn't aware of the details that the other gospel writers wrote about. It's not that he didn't think that they were important, but what he's trying to do is to make a specific point. And remember, John's gospel comes decades after the first three. So he's also assuming that a lot of the story has been heard before. Some of the details have already been taught. They've been part of culture and understanding. And so he's trying to shed light on a particular angle of the same story. And so he's going right to it. He says, okay, so they crucified him there. And then, and then, uh, he, he was with two others, one on either side. Those are details he thought were important to include and Jesus between them. We already looked at one Old Testament picture that, that points to the fact of what Jesus went through when we looked at the Genesis 22 passage of the near sacrifice of Isaac. But this is throughout all of Scripture. In fact, the whole Old Testament, when people say, why would we study the Old Testament? Because Jesus is all through it, though he hasn't arrived from a virgin birth yet. Everything is about the plan of redemption saying God's uh, people are broken. They've rebelled and God has a plan to win them, to restore them, to show his love. And throughout the entire Old Testament, we see images of who was to come through the actions of others or through the through the uh, faithfulness of others, through the sacrifice of others. And we get those glimpses. But perhaps one of the most poignant passages of scripture, there's there's many. But all throughout Isaiah, we get a lot of pointing towards the arrival of Jesus as Messiah. But in Isaiah 53, and I, there was, I wanted to do the whole chapter. It's just all through it. But for time's sake, I want to just focus on one aspect of chapter 53. And as we're listening to this, on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection, tell me this doesn't sound like somebody is basically putting Jesus of Nazareth's picture right up front saying this is what he's going to look like. 
Now that we know what we know about the life that he lived, now that we know about the, the opposition that he faced, let's look at Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he was he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. As I said before and after this are just so many obvious parallels to what Jesus actually went through. And yet we continue to point out that the fault of the Jews is that they anticipated somebody who would have a much smoother ride, a much more victorious um, uh, campaign. But Isaiah is pointing out, why would you expect this to be a, like a, a free skating kind of environment? He is going to pay the price. He is going to encounter opposition. This opposition is what is going to lead to him paying for your sins. He will be the sacrifice provided that Abraham was promised back on Mount Moriah. In other Parts of the scripture, in particular in Exodus 29, we're told that the sacrifice that was made for sins has to be outside of the camp, outside of the temple area. And what did they do with Jesus? They led him out. They moved him away from the center of all the action. We already saw that Isaac had to carry his own wood to his own near sacrifice. And as part of the Roman crucifixion, they would take that cross beam that would eventually they would nail his hands to. But before they did, they would put it on the vic- on the, uh, uh, um, the the perpetrator's shoulders and they would make him carry that 7,500 pounds after having suffered the 39 lashes from that cord with glass and, and metal and all those kinds of things that were just tearing his body apart. And he was weak already. And they would say, well, that's where you're going. That's where your end is. But you've got to bring this wood there before we even get to that part. And what did God's word want to make clear to us is that Isaac had to load up his own wood for that sacrifice as well. Not only was Isaac a picture of of Jesus carrying his own sacrificial wood, but also he was going to the same location. It's not clear that it's exactly the same mound, but but Moriah is the same location as Golgotha, as Mount Zion. Jesus would be the one provided. Remember, Abraham named that mountain. That's where the Lord will provide. Jesus had already told us in chapter 3 of John, chapter 8, chapter 12, he had already said, as the Son of Man needs to be lifted up like the serpent in the desert was in Moses' time, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
Moses had been leading the people through the desert and they started getting deadly snake bites. We remember this story from earlier in the, in, in the gospel of John. And as they were dying from these um, bites of venomous snakes, they would ask Moses, what are we supposed to do about this? And of course, Moses being the intermediary goes to God and says, what am I to, to tell them? And God says, fashion a serpent wrapped around a kind of cross like stake and hold that serpent up in the air, and all of those who will in faith look towards that will not die from the snake bite. And of course, we get that obvious imagery of one who is like you or one who is carrying that venom for you, which is what God did. We heard about this in our communion time that we that we see Jesus had received the wrath of God the Father, the wrath that you and I deserved. That that venomous snake being held up had the same poison going through him that those that were dying of that infection. And in faith, you look to the one who's carrying that same infection for you and you will be healed. There's so many other parallels and Psalm 22 specifically deals with some of the things that we're going to see in, in the crucifixion account. I'm going to reserve portions of Psalm 22 for Pastor Gary next week as he walks us a little bit further into the crucifixion story. But the point is, is that for all of this precision, what's important for us to see is that Jesus positioned himself in God's plan perfectly to die for the worst of the worst. There's little clues for us in there. We know that he was hanging with thieves. We know that those thieves were more than just, you know, pocketbook stealers. These guys were kind of like Barabbas was that, that insurrectionist, that rabble rouser, kind of the worst of the worst. And they were, they were on either side of Jesus and he was hanging. We would say looking equally guilty with them, but actually the center cross position was one of particular offense. The one who was in the middle, if they did three in a row, that one was always considered the worst of the worst. And that's exactly where they hung Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And yet we still wonder, would Jesus understand the sin that I've, that I've done? Would he forgive me? I'm not very religious. I don't go to church that often, or I didn't get to help that little old lady across the street or any of those kinds of things. Why would he love me? Because he's positioned himself in the place that the worst of the worst who can't help themselves, who can't get themselves off their own cross. And yet he makes his grace available for them. And if you know the story, one of those men on the cross took advantage of that grace And Jesus had said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul had told the Philippian church that Jesus being found in human form had humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross with its humiliation, with its torture. That is the death that Jesus was obedient to. And it was the one that God the Father had orchestrated, as we had seen in the last couple of weeks. The Savior took the lowest position to meet our highest demand, which is a rescue from our own shame and guilt. He went to the lowest place so that you and I could find life. Hebrews 12.2, that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, pushing through the shame, not making the shame of it the part that, that was the part to overcome, but instead being faithful to the death of it and carrying on the sins of mankind, facing the wrath of his father. 
is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Holding high the crucifixion shatters our self-importance or our need to make ourselves more important or to be accepted by more. He went to the lowest place so that you and I wouldn't have to worry about such things. That is what a closer examine of the crucifixion does for our worship and does for our humility. Secondly, the coronation of Jesus, this crowning him king and stating him as such, also has its demands that are being made on us. Let's go back into our text in verse 19. We had heard this already that Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. This was a very common thing to make that placard and to put a title over the offender so that people would know again, as you're walking down that road and you're seeing people just hanging out there in the open, it was like they were like street lights in the Roman culture because they were squashing um, uh, uh, lawlessness and things along those lines, putting fear in the hearts of people. And so this inscription read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city for all to see in plain sight. And as we heard, it was written in three different languages, Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, hey, can we get a change here? Because we don't really like the way that it's worded. Can we just edit this out in the program and reprint this thing? We don't like the fact that it says the king of the Jews. What we'd like it to say is this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate not having any of it, sick of being pushed around by them. And also looking forward to kind of goading them even more says what I've written, I've written. Remember what I said at the outset that God will use the intentional plans of mankind to, to accomplish his purposes, even if those intentional plans are for evil. Pilate is clearly demonstrating a pettiness, demonstrating a desire for control and one-upmanship on the Jews. He's, he's definitely moving into this territory of picking a fight continually over and over again. And we've already seen the reaction from the Jewish leaders are, are, are picking that fight back and just not letting him have any room to move in this. Pilate, I believe, was trying to prove how phony that statement they made that we saw last week was when they said, oh, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate says, this is your king right here. I can look through that veiled um, uh, uh, show of support and see it for what it is. You're just playing me politically. You could care less about Caesar. Your complaints are on record. You're not on board with this whole plan. No, this is your king right here, if we're being honest, Right. It's also important that he highlights Nazareth because he knows the Jews have no regard for people from Nazareth. We'd already heard this from the disciples when they were hearing from, uh, you know, you got to come see the, the Messiah. You got to see he's finally, uh, you know, here. And they're like, where's he from? He's from Nazareth. Really? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Even the good guys were like, Nazareth. Pilate goes, Jesus of, and you can almost picture it in caps, Nazareth is your king. Pilate is saying this beaten, bloody, near, you know, flesh off the bones kind of person is all you guys deserve. This is the best you've been able to present to us so far. This one almost had me. You can kind of picture in Pilate's heart. He had, he made me stop in my tracks a couple of times. I'll give you guys that, but no, this is your king. 
Good luck with that. But the Jews, of course, wanted Jesus to sound like an imposter. Let's, let's say this is what his claim was, not because this is what we believe. Pilate's ruthless arrogance and disdain for the Jewish leaders was used to give Jesus the true title he was worthy of. To borrow Mike's phrase from earlier, he was the accidental prophet. This coronation of Jesus being king, the the title is there. He's the king of the Jews. What that demands of us and all that witnessed him, all that walked by it demands our submission. The lordship of Jesus Christ, the, the royalty of Jesus came through in every language known to the travelers at the time. In Aramaic, the Jews are like, well, that's the language of our home. And for Latin, the, the Romans saw exactly what that meant. And Greek was sort of that regional, you know, universe. You better know something about it in order to get by kind of language. And, and it was positioned perfectly to just spread it out from there. You think Pilate saying, I wonder how we can most send out the story of Jesus and spread his fame abroad. Let's put it in all the languages that the common people will recognize and under. No, again, he's Roman arrogance. I want everybody to know this is how Rome squashes out lawlessness. This is how decisive we are. And the whole time he's helping spread a worldwide movement of God worshipers that still has not died out to this day. Thank you, Pilate. Appreciate all you bring to the table. You and I have a demand on us when we see the royalty of Jesus Christ, when we see that he isn't just made Lord in our life, but he has been crowned and labeled Lord already. You and I have the opportunity to surrender and to submit to this benevolent king. And I know it goes against everything within us apart from Christ. We are pretty much shot out of the womb saying, okay, I'm here to rule me. I'm here to live for me. I'm here to orient my whole life around my needs, my wants, and my desires. And so Jesus comes along and says, no, you need a better king in your life because the one that you've been following has misled you and has broken your heart. And worst of all, is allowing you to live in your sin. And one day you will encounter the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And you won't have an option but to say, yep, that's him. And I am dead in the water. So Jesus in his grace offers us to himself as king and Lord before that time comes. And he proves to us over and over again that trusting in him as Lord is for our good, that it brings us peace, that it builds security into our life, that it gives us direction and does so humbly. We see this in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, but he also moves into our life. That's the miracle of the salvation messages. As you and I obey him to follow him, he says, I will take up residence in your heart and I will give you the ability to live in my peace, to, to worship the security that you have in me and to follow my direction. Romans 14, 9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. 
There's a demand on us, not just to say, I need a little bit of Jesus in my life. I need a little bit of religion. It just jumps out at me so much whenever I'm seeing people in either the entertainment world or sports world or something like that. It seems like there's an element of Christ going on there. You know, they'll stand in a circle and grab hands and huddle and they'll pray or there's something going on there. And then they go on stage and just have this like... Uh, you know, exploited, uh, just really sexual kind of all this sort of concert they do and everything. It's like, how did you bring Jesus into that? Well, I wanted him to give me my, my strength that I need because I have it written on my sneakers. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then I'm going to go out and curse out the refs and I'm going to go and celebrate all my fame and everything as I make one shot or score one touchdown or something. And it's like we have this culture that says I can borrow pieces of Jesus that suit my fancy, but to surrender to him to, as Lord? To say that he actually has authority in my life, that if he were to say, this ain't good for you, I'm not allowing it, we would say, well, you know it's best. That isn't a part of what seems to be growing in the world of a Christian culture. 17th century uh, Puritan, English Puritan, John Flavel says it this way. The gospel offer of Christ includes all his offices. The gospel faith just so receives him. How does it receive him? It receives him uh, in a way that calls us to submit to him as well as to be redeemed by him, to imitate him in the holiness of his life, as well as to reap the purchases and fruits of his death. It must be an entire receiving of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why the call is so steep and the reason why the payment is so full is because he is Lord and we submit and surrender to him. The coronation of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords demands our pursuit. This is what Jesus had said to his followers in Luke 14. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross, that must have been strange language for for those that didn't see him yet get crucified. We're told over and over again that he would share uh, the news of his impending death with his disciples and they would kind of debate amongst themselves, what does he mean by this? And then it was just like, okay, what, whatever, we'll move on. And then when it was really happening, they're like, I didn't know it would cost him his life, even though he'd said it over and over again. But he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Simply put, The Christian life begins where you and I end. I'm not saying that we're good at this. I'm not saying that we all, the first time we hear the gospel message and we want to respond to it, or there's something that really draws us in, that we know it's all all that it's going to cost. I'm not saying that we're willing to lay it all down the first second that, that that's presented to us, but the willingness is there. The, the, um, I like to put it as, uh, sometimes when I'm counseling with people, I say, I really am looking for a mindset that says all my best thinking's got me into the trouble I'm in now. So I'm willing to surrender all that best thinking. And if God's got something different for me, I'm all ears. That's the heartbeat of a disciple. That's, that's the heartbeat of surrender is that somebody comes to the cross and says, I can't do this life anymore the way I've been doing it. And this isn't life, if I'm being honest. I can't pay for my own sins. I know they've offended a holy God, so I am all ears. What do you have for me? And the message of the cross is one of humility and of sacrifice that appeals to the, to the sinner to say, you mean you'd do that for me? 
The Christian life begins where we end. And the problem is, is that we're never just, when we make that one decision, we're just never kind of free of that desire to start picking up the old pieces of our life again, are we? We we have those memories, we have some of those things we miss, we have some of those same pulls on our soul, or some of the things that we, we might be drawn to for whatever reason, the things that we like or don't like. And those things come calling back to us. But again, the spirit of the disciple is those things are death to me. I want to follow the Lord. My life needs to continually end. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This isn't one of my favorites because I feel like it's my identity. It's more of a, I want to be that person. I, I want to be able to say before all you and before my family that, that Brent Small is crucified with Christ, that he no longer lives for the things that he used to love or the things that he think would please him or serve his own uh, kingdom. But instead, it's Christ and only Christ who lives through him. That's what I want to be able to say. And yes, if I'm being honest, there are parts of me that are able to do that. Some parts better than others. The Lord's done a lot of work in my life as I know he's done a lot of work in your life. It's not all a train wreck, but that draw is still there, isn't it? That memory of who you used to be or that desire to return to some of those things. But that's why Paul says as a statement of of discipline to crucify ourselves with Christ. Positionally, are we there? Yes. That's the act of salvation. But progressively, what we call sanctification is a continual picking up the cross of Jesus Christ daily and following him. Carson puts it this way. He says, to die die to self means to consider it better to die than, say, to lust. To consider it better to die than to tell a particular falsehood. Or to consider it better to die than to just name your thing. Would it be better for us to no longer live than to fall victim to that? Now, I got to say this carefully because in our culture today, we even even uh, believers in Christ think that it's their own prerogative to whether or not they check out of life early because it's just too hard or I'm not holding up my end of the bargain and I feel bad about me. I would even put that response of suicide or those kinds of thoughts in the same sentence. To die to self means to consider it better to spiritually die than to just make it all about you and check out of life so that other people have to pick up the pieces. See, all of our selfish endeavors, all the things that we that we do to serve us are the things that need to die so that Christ lives in us. We worship a humble, sacrificial God. That's what we're seeing on the pages of Scripture. That Jesus, as he lived this whole life and made so many friends and got to be um, kind of the center of, not kind of, but it got to be the center of all these great things and these miracles. And, and, and then the people were responding and his fame was growing. He said, that's not what I'm here for. What I'm here for is to pay for their sins. So all the ways in which he was getting those many forms of worship, he, he passed on those. He forgo, forwent those things so that he wouldn't get distracted from the real mission that he came to do, which was to humbly, sacrificially lay his life down for us. 
what that should produce in all of us that claim to follow him, what should, what should produce in us is the most humility and the most sacrifice of any peoples on this earth. If he is our king, if he is our God, if he is our leader, if he dwells within us, it needs to show up in the most humble and sacrificial ways. There's no other way around it. We worship a humble, sacrificial God, but we also worship a mighty, victorious king. And that should make us the most happily obedient people on the earth. His, his rule is kind. His rule is for our good. His rule is not with an iron fist. He took, fist, he took the iron fist for us so that we wouldn't have to. And his plans for peace and his plans for, for, for security in our lives need to be obeyed because it's for our good, even while he gets all the glory. But as we've already said, our sin gets in the way of those responses, right? We, we still wake up as us. We are being renewed. We are being transformed. We are learning how to let more and more pieces of our life be crucified on the cross with Jesus. But we still have these compulsions. We still have these pulls. We still have this human flesh, this bag of bones that is still infected with sin that is being renewed and made more like Christ every day. But it isn't totally eradicated until we are relieved of this earth. So the question for us is, will we learn to die to self as we pursue the cross of Jesus Christ? The closer that we allow ourselves to become to his suffering, while though not having to necessarily do all of his suffering because he's done it for us, the more compelled we will become to imitate him, the more we will encounter the grace made available from this sacrifice and the more the presence of the Holy Spirit will own more parts of our lives where we will grow closer as we walk with him. And it's that presence that will fuel our sacrifice. It will fuel our humility. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit and why it looks like it does from the scriptures. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is worthy of our study. It's worthy of our attention. It's worthy of our memory. And so in some way, shape, or form as a big commercial, if you will, for our Good Friday service, it's our opportunity to come in greater contact with that humble sacrifice, to be reminded of all that it demands of us. Let's pray together. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for the ability to look backwards whatever pain it is that we feel or or fear that we feel of looking back to the events of the cross they are made all the more lighter because we are not looking at those events as some form of uh punishment or threat to us instead we look back as as worship because you have provided for us you went through that on our behalf Lord, help us in our lives, in our bodies, in our commitment to you to hold high the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary's cross. Help us to trust that that was the provision that was made for us and for everybody else that we encounter. May we live sacrificially, but as a tribute, as an expression of worship for the sacrifice that we've received. Thank you for the grace that you've given to us. Thank you, Lord, for this great love that you've shown us and empower us with that love. Fuel us by your spirit 
to be able to love others in kind. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?